Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Jenny Nelson. And I'm Mark Jeeves, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts that, well, we hope shows you about this backroom stuff that we call radio production. This is Reproducer. Mark and I work together at Scala Radio, part of Bauer Media. We produce radio programmes and we have been chatting to people from across other networks to find out how people do the job that we do, where they work. And in this episode, we're delighted to be joined by a producer who was working on shows during the early days of commercial radio in the UK. We are going back to the 70s and 80s. Our guest this week is Trevor White. He taught me the value of less is more. He, there was never, in any of his links, there was never really a word that wasn't necessary. I felt my main job was to create an environment that was safe, comfy and supporting, I guess, that allowed my presenters to just give the best they could and to be confident in doing that. Now, Trevor was a radio producer, as Jenny said, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, but started off, uh, 1973 was when we got our first commercial radio stations in the UK, LBC first and then Capital. Uh, and Trevor was, um, as we'll find out, didn't start in radio production, but certainly ended up in radio production, looking after some amazing names, people like Alan Freeman, Kenny Everett, uh, then moving to Virgin Radio, uh, then running Magic Radio, then running Planet Rock. It's quite a career, as you'll hear. And it's really great to have Trevor on the podcast because he's quite an unassuming guy, uh, but as you'll find out, he's worked with some interstellar talent, including a Beatle. We'll, we'll, there's a little tease for you. We'll also chat about the intricacies of producing the network chart back in the day, Trevor's own mentors, him having a job interview in a toilet, and his ideas for how we nurture new production talent. But we started off by asking Trevor about his route into radio. Reproducer. 
Reproducer. The love of radio really came from growing up in the 60s and the music of the Beatles, the Kinks, the Who, um, Top of the Pops with uh, a little microphone hanging over the TV speaker to my reel-to-reel grunt dig that I used to record every week so then I could listen to it all week. And you'd always try and just capture the song. So you'd always be waiting for the fade to get just so far and then hit it before he spoke so you didn't have all the words all week. But uh, it was that. And then my parents had a boat on the Thames. We used to go out all every weekend and it was always Alan Freeman. And we'd all sit down and listen to the chart. So the chart became a weekly thing that just was really important. Uh, I did a paper round listening to Blackburn every morning. And then Everett, on uh, when he was around, you know, it was just great radio. And so always a love of radio. Um, then I became a recording engineer at Morgan Studios, um, which then gave me a route in to radio via the production side, of, as in, you know, technical production rather than program production. And that's really how I got into it, through... Uh, through being a recording engineer. So what was your first radio station then that you were actually employed by and, and in what role? That was Capital as a tech op in 1977. Okay. Uh, when every program had a, a balance engineer. So at some point then you, you made the leap from that into, from engineer into production, into actually program making. What was that and how did that come about? Um, that was Tim Blackmore's idea. When Capital did a co-promotion with a band, part of the contract was that you'd always um, get a recording of the London gig. And literally, whoever it was, you'd be recording Ella Fitzgerald to Robert Plant the next, you 2 the next. It was just amazing. Whoever came to London, we tended to record. So it was always a waste to have a producer and an engineer to do that when the engineer actually did all the work anyway and produced the the concert uh, master at the end of it we also was a thing called needle time where you were only allowed to play needle time which was um songs on the major labels for so many hours a day the rest of the day had to be non-needle time or sessions so there was lots of um if you go back and look at the uh output of the, the stations then there was lots of soundtrack stuff uh, musicals and live sessions so uh we recorded those as well um then also and and produced them because that was the role of the the producer engineer at the time and from that um i had a love of rock music so nicky horn said i'd like him to be my producer and from that i then did his rock shows then I did Pick of the Pops, then I did Network Chart, and it just tumbled from there, really. So that's how. When I got to know you, you had gone, I mean, you were running Magic for a while, and then you ran Planet Rock. And actually, before that, you were producing uh, one of the biggest breakfast shows um, in the country at the time, which was the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show, Russ and Jono. So you, you moved from Capital to Virgin at some point. Yes, my interview was in the the toilets at the Sony Awards in the Grosvenor when I met Richard Skinner. <laughs> and uh, it went along the lines of, oh, how's it going? Oh, it's all right. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? 
Yes, I suppose I would really. Would you like to be? And that was, um, yeah, that was he- he- at those days. I, I was breakfast show producer and head of music, so it was kind of four o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. So, Trevor, so just in general with regards to radio, what do you, as both someone who's worked in it and as a listener, what do you love about radio and what frustrates you about it? The immediacy and the intimacy of live radio is just fantastic. A lovely voice can make such uh, an incredible impression and contact with people. It's so seductive. It's a seduction, that's the word. And with the right content, it's just unbeatable. And on a negative side, is there some, you know, what would make you, what are your switch off reasons? Repetition, over formatting, a competition where I can win £100,000 to change my life. I really don't need to be told about it every single link. Really, it's, that, it's the dumbing down of it where I, I, I don't like too much of a presenter but I do like the presenter to be the presenter, to be himself and for me to know him a little bit. And I do find that the particularly commercial radio is just too repetitive, too messaging. It's almost, it's a bit like what they're doing on, well, on everything from politics downwards. It's almost gaslighting you to believe something. It's like the slogans of the best from today, tomorrow and wherever. And they do, you just keep hitting people with that. And in the end, they'll believe it, apparently. But it drives me crazy. I appreciate your honesty, I think Mark and I both do. Um, but going back to your career, what is, what's your proudest moment? I, I thought about that and there's been, there hasn't really, I think when Mark and I stood up on stage at the, the Sony's for Planet Rock's first Sony, I think that was a very proud moment. It's always been an award because it just recognises all of the effort. It might not mean anything to anybody else, but it recognises the effort that you and your little team put into that thing for that period of time. And most of the Sony's, they're kind of a a little recipe that you do. You do Sony Award shows, if you like. But it all came from that, that sort of longevity of the show and the work that went into that show. And I think all of those awards are just little, little well dones that mean something, mean a lot to maybe two or three people and very little to anybody else. But to those people, it means a huge amount. The team in particular, because as you know, radio is not the best rewarded thing. And to just get a little pat on the back is good. Yeah, that's true. And again, looking back, and perhaps these might be things that you don't really like to dwell on, but is there a particular nightmare moment on your in through your career that you just think, oh God, <laughs> I can't believe that happened? The worst moment was I was producing the network chart with Neil Fox and Whitney Houston was number one and had been for about 30 weeks at that time. And I was doing the live bit. Somebody else, for some reason, that week record. Normally, I'd record all the inserts and the rundowns and everything, and it was all pre-recorded anyway. With uh, the, the last sections were all pre-recorded, and somebody else recorded it and mistimed it. And the network chart was the most horrible show because there were probably sixty program directors listening, waiting for you to screw up so they could just hit the phone and go, "You're crap," because <laughs> they didn't like us in London. Um, 
and it was exactly a minute out and I was playing number two at the time ready to go into the number one it was a minute so I had to <laughs> I just did this edit on the run and I, it was um oh, what was the Whitney song today and I will always love you that one and the intro the very slow bit before the, the song actually kicks in is exactly a minute long so I did an edit on the run <laughs> And then just played it in and it, it just it came perfectly. I remember Fox walking in as I was doing it. And he just saw me and went, oh, and just walked out again. <laughs> but that was probably the worst, uh, the worst, the being gripped by fear. I do uh, think people who've worked in radio, you know, like that, that universal dream about being in an exam that you've not studied for or being at school and you haven't got your clothes on or whatever. I think radio people have that one of, you know, being in a studio and something yes. not working. Like I don't remember how to or... put the news fader up. Exactly, exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Reproducer. What would be interesting, uh, Trevor, is to find out we've been asking everyone about their sort of mentors because uh, you were, if you don't mind me saying, a mentor to me and still are. And so um, interesting to see who your mentors were, who were the people in the industry who you really thought were in, you know, instrumental in you, what you did. The first most important one was a guy called Robin Black, who was a top engineer, a uh, recording engineer in the 1970s. He did God, he did Floyd, he did Tarly, he did Sabbath. He, he was just the bee's knees. And he, he took me, un, I was 17, and he took me under his wing and just taught me. And he, he, he taught me such important things. Like if you're an engineer and you're just, you're, the band are talking about doing something, then you'll quietly slip away, set the mics up, get it all ready. So if they do decide to do it, you just go, literally faders up and they can go. You don't have to stop and do anything. And that worked very well throughout my entire career, really. It's that I was a backroom boy and I knew it. And I didn't want to be the man in front of the, the TV camera, the whatever. I just wanted to, to make audio. That was the fun of what I did. And um, he taught me to be invisible that you just get all of those things done. You just do everything you can to make life easier and comfortable for them. So they don't have any of that stress of what's going on. You just quietly do it. And it's just seamless. And when it all works like that, that's just such a good feeling that, you know, all of those little components that you just quietly did all came together and made something really nice. Roger Scott, I shared an office with the Capitol for 
quite a few years. And I suppose he taught me the value of less is more. He, there was never, in any of his links, there was never really a word that wasn't necessary. Yeah, he could still convey his enthusiasm and love of generally Bruce Springsteen and, and still make just great radio in, in these little formatted bits that he was so clever at. Yeah, you could put him in front of someone and then he'd have a conversation with them that just flowed and was brilliant. So he taught me a lot about how presentation should sound, different sorts of presentation. Richard Park, obviously, and Mark Story, both program directors to me, both very, very different. Park, his intuitive knowledge of what worked was incredible. And Mark was just such an enthusiastic character to be around uh, that it just rubbed off on you and you, you just wanted to work for the guy. So, yeah, they're probably the main ones. So, t taking all that into account, if you could go back now and give a piece of advice to your younger self, having, you know, well, because the names you've mentioned, legendary names and in, in, in radio, uh, certainly, as, as well as the music industry. So if you could go back and give a bit of itself, uh, advice to your younger self, what, what would that be? I was a bit chippy, and I'd say don't fight the system, really. It's uh, now and again, you don't know everything. Not often in my case, obviously. But... <laughs> I used to get a bit chippy with people that I should, you know, when they disagreed with what I wanted to do, I might get a bit sulky, maybe. One of the reasons that Mark and I wanted to do this podcast series is because a lot of what goes into being a producer is the other things that aren't necessarily taught and are also so many producers we've spoken to have a slightly different description of what the role itself entails how would you define the role of a producer every kind of show is different and the demands of different talent is very different i'm sure if you're working with uh, steve lamack you wouldn't have much to do with the music you'd be an operational guy to make sure it goes very well but then if you've got that kind of voice on a stick, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, then you have to feed them everything. So that depends. I always just, I felt my main job was to create an environment that was safe, comfy and supporting, I guess, that allowed my presenters to just give the best they could and to be confident in doing that but all about creating uh, an environment where people could actually do their best work. What was it like working with Alan Freeman? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, I remember our first show together and um, we used to put the music together, together. And it, then it was listening on headphones to LPs. Um, well, the rock show in particular. And uh, I, I finished the running order and gave it to him and he said, uh, have you checked it? I went, yep. And he chucked it back to me and said, check it again. And that was fluff. He was the most pedantic of men. Um, and doing the, the chart shows, those two rundowns, they were just um, constant stress, really, because you'd have, you know, you'd have two hours of music, well, three hours of music to get into two hours. 
there were certain ones you had to play them all because you know all the enders you'd want to end and you'd have to work out which ones were going to fade how much you're going to fade them and they were quite technical exercises um and he was uh just a delight to work with really hard working uh quite often you'd just you know you'd put on the track and you just throw his headphones his, his head back and just listen on headphones with this lovely little smile and he really enjoyed everything he did he was not very good technically you'd always be hovering behind him with moving his hands onto the right fader mid-link and um we did this great show where it was the first it wasn't a great show actually <laughs> we had a see it was his first time with a cd player and um <laughs> He pushed the start and it all was it was all going swimmingly, you know, it was the music was coming out, but I saw him staring at it. And then his little finger came out and went dop on a button and it all went quiet. And the draw came out with the C D in it. Oh, no. And uh again he didn't miss a beat, he just oh uh, anyway, <laughs> off he went. He was lovely. He was the best. Great guy. Well, it's interesting that you say that about like you mentioned about when when the presenter you know really loves it and gives a lot to the show and and you also refer to the kind of the more the gob on a stick or the show and go presenters um i mean when it comes to talent management in general what advice would you give to aspiring producers about working with well-known names who may or may not uh bring various challenges I suppose it's trying to get, you, you just have to get to know them. You're the team. It might only be two of you, but you have to be a team. You can't work against each other or separate. Or I, you know, I don't know how you guys do work now when I think some stations don't even have a studio, do they? To, you know, you're all over the country. But I always, I've always valued teams. I've loved teams because of the interaction, the bounce, you, know, you bounce things together. But it's constant communication and finding out about you know, the, the people you're working with, the things that excite them, the things that interest them. Um, and again, you just create that comfortable atmosphere to work in, that you, you enjoy each other's company, so you, you do your best work together. But otherwise, it's just, it, it's that you go back to Robin and just making sure everything's there, everything is there for them that you think they need and might not need. When, when I was producing, I had a folder with me, at all, pretty much at all times, that had at least a show's worth of material in. So whatever happened, there was a show with every single feature catered for. Whenever you went around people's houses, you'd be ripping up their newspapers, you'd be ripping up their magazines, you'd be sitting in the dentist ripping bits out of the things. It was just gathering material. material. So you, you've never... They're ne you're never going to let them down, basically. And if they know you're never going to let them down, that's a really good basis for a relationship. Uh, we, we're very keen, uh, as, I say, as Jenny mentioned on this podcast, for you know, if anyone's wanting to come into this industry, that it gives them some idea of what uh, it's actually like. But in terms of uh, what we can do as an industry to, um, to help new producers, what would your thoughts be on that? How do we nurture new talent? I think it's very difficult. Consolidation is... You know, how many producers do you guys use now? Um, I bet it's not as many as it used to be. Well, you know, we had every show had a producer, so you've immediately cut. And 
you know, before consolidation, there were 60 more radio stations that weren't called hard. Yeah. Um, so the opportunity to be a producer is greatly reduced in broadcast radio. However, I think podcasts are a fabulous opportunity. I think the internet is possibly uh, not so much for produce, well, for a producer of a station more than just a show. Um, so as far as the big companies are concerned, I think that they'll just carry on gobbling up everyone they possibly can and calling them heart. Or greatest hits is your version, isn't it? <laughs> um, so that will carry on, and you will use producers. I assume you still use live producers there. But I think the future really is in podcasting, and where a producer can be uh, an expert at something as well. So, how do you feel about radio's future? Do you feel that radio has a, 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 a has a good future? And if not, what does it need to do about that? I think speech radio has a great future, but it's going to be uh, left-right biases. I think that it will become more and more politically, um, more, have, have a more political agenda than it does now. You can already see that happening and you can, you know, with the Murdoch purchasing uh, radio stations now, you, you, know, you know what you're gonna hear. I'm sure the Daily Mail are looking very hard at what, what could we buy. So we could, you know, also put our view there, because I think it's very obvious that the broadcast and podcast will, are, you know, they're going to take over from print media much more, because you've got celebrities doing this as well. Music, I find most music radio quite depressing. Um, it's just got too obvious. Six music is quite interesting, but um, doesn't play enough rock and roll for me. But no, I do think the future is broadcast radio is going to diminish without a doubt. And because podcasts allow people to listen to what they want, when they want, how they want. Um, so then a couple of things just to for us to finish off with. First of all, uh, the, we, we've asked the Alan Freeman question. We also have to ask the Kenny Everett question. What was Kenny like to uh, like to work with, please? Just what you saw. He was lovely. Oh. I don't think any nobody really produced him. They just kept him company. Oh, to, oh, really? He used to leave with this little wooden box of I think it was eight or ten carts, and he'd come back with them in the morning, all refreshed, and that was his new show. And with those little bits, it might be a new Captain Kremen or a little new little song he he'd recorded. But he did it all at home in his studio, and probably the most creative bloke we've ever had him radio i think um but now he just did it on his own and you know his producer was his company and he'd do the prs and he'd do all the mechanics around it but ken was ken you couldn't tell ken what to do so that goes back to it as a producer a, a different producer for a different presenter you had you had an entirely different way of dealing with him than you did with alan freeman or you did with anyone else then you just sat yes, down and, yes, chat with him. and i think every, everyone is different because it's you've got to adapt to their personality to get the best out of them and that, that really is your role, is just to get the best out of, you know, it's the best content, the best music, it's the best links, it's everything. Best segues, just, you know, whatever you can do to make it better, you do. So for anyone listening to this, they think, well, you've obviously worked with everyone who, who all of us would have gone, I would like to work with Insert here. 
might be Kenny Everett, might be... Who, is there anyone you, you hadn't worked, you didn't work with that you thought, I wish I had worked with that person? I would have liked, quite liked to have worked with Chris Evans. Because I really? think he's, he's been the biggest thing in radio. You know, he, when he did his tours with that first stint on Radio 1, did he have two? One. He'd do the road shows and he'd walk up Hull High Street and like the doors would open and people would follow him. And it, it was like a messiah almost. It was just so, he, he just captured that moment so perfectly, that Britpop moment. And, and uh, it was, I would have loved to have been a part of that. But he fired me. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got a chance. Was this when he took over Virgin Radio? Yeah. Okay. Well, don't hold it against him. Um, oh, I do. I can assure you. Can you what happened? Like for for people who aren't aware, what happened? He bought it. Uh, he just bought it. It was Ginger Radio or Ginger Productions. They came in and and took the thing over, so they didn't need a, a head of music anymore. And was it one of those firing situations where literally you were just out the door that day? Of course, it was radio. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that is a, one of the things that, for the good, I would like to say, that has changed is that whole kind of, and believe me, like, I've been victim to it of being told we've closed your radio station down, it's off air, out you go, you've got an hour to clear your desk, get out. Um, not the nicest of feelings. But I mean, that I don't think still happens, or I haven't um, heard it happen. Well, you've done your last show. I don't, yeah. I think that it's the worst, one of the worst elements, I think, is that that football manager kind of feel everyone has that you know, kind of waiting to be fired all the time. I think all of us have felt that at some point that you're just waiting for, it's always bad when new management come in because they've got their friends, the people they like working with, the people they've got to know, the people they've worked with well, they much prefer that. So, and generally they do. So no, that's, uh, it's never been good. I think the worst one was we had all the jocks on the wall. And, uh, you know, if you were there, working there, your picture was up. And they took one, we're firing him that day, but they took his picture down a bit early. So <laughs> it was the gap when he walked in. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh now, but yeah. <laughs> at the time. <laughs> there must be a few moments in your career where uh, things have uh, been a bit of a, a challenge. Have you ever had an OMG moment? What's your biggest OMG moment you've ever had? I think the first show with Alan Freeman was one of those because he was such a legend and I was just in awe of him, really. So that was, that was a very exciting moment. Meeting Paul McCartney in Los Angeles, that was a very exciting moment. What happened there? Um, it was a bit, it didn't go very well, actually. It was one of those OBs. Um, that we, Paul McCartney was playing the Los Angeles Forum and we were sent out, Richard Allenson and I, uh, were sent out with a couple of winners um, to Los Angeles. But no one had worked out. It was Thanksgiving, so the bloody place was shut. So <laughs> you couldn't, there was very little background stuff you could add to it. And we, we got, and then, <laughs> that's right, JVC were the sponsors. They had a big list of questions that they wanted for some presentation, and I had my interview to get. So I did my interview, and just as we were getting to the JVC questions, a bloke came in and said, got to go now. So that, that went down terribly when we got back, because they, 
they didn't have anything for their money. Um, so yes, it was uh, just one of those ones that wasn't uh, wasn't the best. But how was Paul? Yes, he was lovely. I've still got my photo. And um, uh, I also imagine you've had a, a, a FFS moment. And we always ask our producer guests what their FFS moment would be. How would you describe yours? Was it through Hazlitt? Yes, it was. Yes. It was, yes. When we were at uh, GCAP at the time, wasn't it? And Fru right. decided that DAB wasn't going to work, was it? So let's sell Planet Rock and whatever the other one was. And uh, so that was it. She stood there and said, there's no future in Planet Rock, which was like, oh, fuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's right. yeah, that, that was just the most... I think ridiculous. we were stood together, weren't we? I do remember <laughs> yes, that. Yes, yes. We both and, uh, had a similar, similar feeling. And then months of seeing venture capitalists trying to sell it, which, hey, we did in the end. Reproducer. Ah, yes. The sale of Planet Rock, and I worked at the station when that was going through. Um, and although he doesn't take a lot of credit for it, uh, Planet Rock really only exists because of the work that Trevor uh, and a guy called Mark Lee did, who's now the um, CEO of Communicall. Uh, they work incredibly hard to make sure that station still exists and was sold. So good on you both. Yeah, and I mean, clearly going, you know, it's it's so strong at the moment. I mean, credit to him for putting that work in, or otherwise it would be resigned to one of the one of the stations that no longer exists. And I think, you know, I think compared to the other episodes in this series, yes, perhaps it's quite negative to be looking at things like station closures and um, people finding out that they've just done their last show. But having said that, I think you know, if we are truly wanting to represent the industry and what it's like to work in it, we do need to cover difficult subjects like that. And so I'm kind of glad that, that, that Trevor brought them up. But I do think, whilst I admire his honesty, like the passion is definitely there. I mean, him talking about the programmes that he worked on with the talent who he worked with. And I really loved that line about your role as a producer is to create a supportive environment so the presenter can do their best work. I mean, that that's one of the best descriptions, really. So, yeah, it was great to have him on. So we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you did, remember there's a whole bunch more to enjoy wherever you get your podcasts from. We've talked to some really fascinating people, people like uh, Liz Barnes, who now works She was with us at Planet Rock as well. She works now with Radio 2 legend Johnny Walker, Mark Lockett from Absolute Radio, uh, and Hussein Husseini, from, uh, who's a morning editor at Times Radio. Um, the easiest way to get new episodes is just to follow the podcast. If you do that, you'll get them every time we drop some. Uh, but in the meantime, from Jenny and me, Thank you for listening and goodbye. Reproducer. 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 <laughs>